Hi, and welcome to the Change Today podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Keila Kaday. So Kaday is my last name, and in French, it means soldier. So when we talk about Change Kaday, we're talking about soldiers of change. In my company, we talk about soldiers of change in the place of diversity, inclusion, and equity. But here, it may talk about the workplace, but we may also talk about stories of just change in general from various different aspects of life. Change today is all about stories of change at what times may feel like an upward battle, but people are getting to their places of joy. So here, I'll share some of my own stories. I'll also interview guests who took risks and grew from their experience of navigating change to find their joy. I hope that these stories that you hear today um, will be an opportunity for you to become inspired and maybe a change today in your own life. Welcome to the Change Today podcast. I'm so, so excited to have Dr. Shamel Bell. How does that sound? Sounds creepy. No, it doesn't <laughs> sound creepy. Dr. Akila Kaday is great. It's on my Amazon packages. I know. It sounds hilarious because now, because of you, it's you that um, <laughs> I went to the yoga, um, like to sign up for yoga, and I signed doctor uh-huh. before my name. And then she saw my car, says Dr. S. Bell. And so the lady was like, You have to put doctor everywhere. I was like, Yes, 10 years of work and research. I'm going to put doctor everywhere. I was like, actually, my friend told me to put doctor on everything, and I'm listening to her. Everything. No, I. it was you. I was talking about you. I tell people that all the time. It's on my, like, airplane flight ticket. Yes, I put it on my airplane flight ticket, too. It's just, people need to know. Hotels. 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 Anytime I introduce myself, I literally got it from you. Sometimes you can get upgraded, too, because I think you're important. And the wonderful thing is that we are important. <laughs> yeah, so in repeating what you said, how do I feel being called doctor? I feel important. Good. Because sure. I am important. You are important. You are important. I did a thing that was big. What was that? Became a doctor. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell people a little bit about yourself? Yes, I am a mother to an amazing eight-year-old who is part spiritual guru, part helping people get free from the Matrix. (laughs) We were watching Matrix the past couple of days, and he is, like, locked in. Um, I am a community organizer. I am a cultural ethnographer. I am a dancer choreographer. I am a documentary filmmaker. I am so many things. So many things. Yeah. Like I it's just hard trying to yeah to list them. And now you And I'm a Dartmouth professor. Say that again. I'm an Ivy League professor. You are and you will be teaching. I'll be teaching theater one at Dartmouth in the fall as well as race, gender and performance and we are trying to figure out three more courses for anthropology and African and African-American studies program. Wait, so that sounds, that sounds like you're moving, moving. That's what the change that I'm in this process of. I don't know if I'm moving for 10 weeks or 10 months. That's what I mean. I, my, actually, my mentor, Robin D.G. Kelly, wrote Freedom Dreams at Dartmouth, and I didn't even know that. And I, like, most of my work is on that foundation. Yeah. And he was visiting there, and they were looking for someone else in the African and African-American studies program. And he's like, 
you know, my student is actually going to be in the theater department. So now they're working to expand that from 10 weeks to the whole academic year. So, yeah, I have an official appointment, but it's like we're working on more courses. So how does that make you feel that you are having this opportunity and to be in a place with one of your you know, mentors and or role models? Well, yeah. Well, Robin Kelly is here at UCLA now. He was only at Dartmouth when he was writing that book, which is incredible. Yeah, Yeah. it's incredible that I would be able to be in that same space where, you know, obviously I want to turn my dissertation um, and the documentary that I did for my dissertation into a book. And so I'm going to actually be in the same space that he wrote Freedom Dreams. And I don't know if he quite understands that because he's like, things are coincidences. And I don't believe anything <laughs> is a coincidence. So I am, yeah. I'm elated. I am honored. I am grateful because I know that this transition is going to um, give me the energy that is needed to be the change agent that I am. Yeah. Like Freedom Dreams, if you talk to anyone that's an arts activist, they read Freedom Dreams. Yeah. Like he, it's known. And I am going to be literally where he like finished Freedom Dreams. And I have started the foundations. You saw the book that I did for my uh, my yeah. little photo shoot for my dissertation. I had like the Freedom Dreams book up. Yeah. I had no idea that I would be asked to teach at Dartmouth. That's a lot of change that's happening, including you're going to be in um, New Hampshire. New Hampshire. And I don't know what that's like. I've actually never been to New Hampshire. Yeah, I went once last year, which is why they asked me to come and yeah. teach. And it was a wonderful experience in the little um area that I was in, like, over, yeah. like black and, you know, black theater. And yeah. so I understand that I was in a little vacuum pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Um, so I see myself, the students, we connected and they were trying to figure out how to get me back. And we made a lot of lasting connections, obviously, because okay. people that I didn't even remember that would remember me. Yeah. Um, they, you know, were sending me messages like, I heard you're coming here. Yeah. And so um, that's what's great because it's not really about the location. It's about the connections. Mm-hmm. So I follow soul connections. Yeah. Um, and I follow energy. So and you'll have a community when you get there. I'll have a community already. Yeah. And the great thing about having a name that kind of precedes you is that um, depending on who resonates with me, that's who I'm going to be in community with and find my soul tribe. That's all I'm concerned about. I do often have a lot of negativity on the outside of me. But this lesson that I'm learning right now is to be present with the people that are supposed to resonate with me and, you know, kind of welcome whoever else isn't like away from my journey. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, wish them well, you know, acknowledge them and in their in their presence as being, you know, a being in this world, but not harboring like um, any resentment or making it something that's personal to myself. So I know that New Hampshire, I bring that up because New Hampshire is obviously a lot of people that don't look like me and may not have the same kind of sensibilities or same moral compass or even the same um, core values as I do. And I think this is a really great lesson on learning what it means to be present in my own integrity yeah. and not being shaken to the left or to the right or being emotional about um, how other people might trigger me based on what I feel like I believe and what I stand in. So you kind of touched on it a little bit, but what makes you a change today? So for those of you who are listening, um, change today is my company and 
K is my last name. It means soldier. So we create soldiers of change. And my company, it's specific to diversity, but change is so important to the foundation of like living your best life and getting to a place of passion, purpose, and joy. So what makes you a change today? Yeah, I live my days. I live my life. I live every day for liberation of my people and not just my people, but for myself and for my son. So I think sometimes when you think, oh, I'm going to change today, I just want to change the world. Mm -hmm. But I think it's impossible to change the world if we don't start with our own immediate circumstances, which is ourselves. Absolutely. And not even just with ourselves. But for me, um, it's not just my material conditions that needs to change. It's my internal environment, um, my internal world. It. I think also the way that I parent my son. So Mm -hmm. I am homeschooling my son. So yes, I went through a PhD program as a single mother homeschooling Mm -hmm. my son. He easy peasy. He's a high school dropout as we laugh, you know, like all (laughs) these billionaires are like, oh, I was a high school dropout. And we're like, no, no, no. We have a kindergarten dropout. I meant he's a (laughs) kindergarten dropout. We laugh about. Um, So yeah, you know, um, the way that I make change is by creating the opportunities for people to see me mm-hmm. doing those things every day unapologetically. You know, I graduate and I go viral for crip walking while I graduate. And I look at people like, if you knew me, you knew I'd be crip walking as I graduate, <laughs> you know, across the stage. Because um, it's important for me as someone that's been raised in South Central Los Angeles, as someone that is first generation in a lot of ways, that I know that I do a lot through fear. Mm-hmm. And I want people to know that fear and hardships and uncertainty, you know, I'm in the most uncertain space right now. Like yeah. I have no idea where I'm going. If I'm leaving for 10 weeks or 10 months to Dartmouth, I don't yeah. know where I leave this apartment in five days yeah. and don't know where I should move my things. I don't know if I'm bringing my car, but this is the moment that I'm being present and I'm allowing. And that's what I want to show people as a change agent. You know, yeah. like I want to show them that change is inevitable, but it's yes. it's not something that we should choose to suffer from. It's something that we should ease through and don't want to be a part of this toxic positivity where it's just like, hey, you know, change is good. You know, don't feel your emotions. I want us to feel the emotions before you saw me today. I was crying and you helped me to move out of that space, you know, just by being, you know, a generator and you like generate that positivity and that joy in me. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important when we think about um, how we want to create change in the world is recognizing that, yes, there's going to be shifts. It's going to be, you know, in order for us to be able to make changes, we have to shift and not be afraid of it. Yeah. And even if we are afraid of it, we need to fear it, feel it. We need to feel the feel, not fear. <laughs> we, we need to feel the fear, yeah. even if the fear arises. I think the problem that I've been bumping into is trying to ignore that I do have those fearful feelings. And then so in my subconscious, the fear is actually um, radiating more than I actually than my, you know, positive thoughts mm-hmm. about what I'm trying to do or allow to come through yeah. because I haven't looked at the fear, addressed it, say, what are you doing to help me? Are you, I know you're trying to save me from something and that's why you have those fear responses. Right. But if I just ignore it, then it's just going to still be that vibration, right? That fear vi- vibration and I'm actually creating that. But if I feel through the emotions, if I name it and I say, oh, 
this is why I'm feeling this. And in the past, this has helped me in a certain way. Mm -hmm. So that is why you're still there. Welcome it and say, hey, I don't actually need this anymore. Right. Like, I got this. We, right. We've done this before. And guess what? Every single time we're fine. So why don't we just move on from this fear? I and, yeah. love hearing this because we met at a Time's Up event a few months back. It was like the launch of Time's Up. Black women. Black women. Entertainment. Yeah, leaders. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. We don't know. But there were a lot of, um, it was an interesting group. Of women, you had it wasn't, you know, LA. So you a big presence of the entertainment industry that was there. Um, and then I, I met you towards the end of it. Um, well, we were leaving. We were yeah, we were leaving, and you were clearly important because important people were talking to you, and I didn't know who you were. <laughs> and then uh, I think I don't know. It was either outfit talk of clothes yes. being great right or something and then I mentioned that I was doc and then you mentioned you were finishing your doctorate and you just didn't know what to do with your life and I was like it'll be fine <laughs> um but um that's how we got to this place of um I guess coaching I don't know advising yeah. pathway support as you make that transition into um being a doctor so it in the beginning of our relationship, you wouldn't have not said these things that you are saying now because you were living more in a place of like fear, mm -hmm. too many unknowns. But now that you have persevered through more than just being a single mom, going through a doctoral program because mm -hmm. that's different, mm -hmm. and you're on this other side, and we're literally sitting in your apartment that is in boxes <laughs> as you're preparing for this transition that also has a lot of unknowns, you have this really wonderful energy and also this huge smile on your face so you're just like this is my life right now but wonderful things are happening and I'm excited for what is to come and a lot of people don't realize how important it is to like you said really um, embrace change and be open to change um, mm -hmm. because that is the best thing like when you're like I got this then everything is easy and mm -hmm. simple and thank you for acknowledging that shift in me. Like, and, and I'm just grateful to, I was just telling my best friends that just left here. Um, it's like, yeah, I met her. I was saying exactly what you just <laughs> said. And, you know, she offered to coach me. And we have these conversations where it's just like I'm talking back at myself about where I think I need to shift. And, you know, you've paved the way for being this doctor. And no, no, listen, like I, I know that I can do it because you are the type of doctor and change today that I want to be. So I'm just like, or that I already am. We're just ref like literally a reflection. Like I'm looking yeah. at you smiling so much because given our issues with our health and given, yeah. you know, we might have different like storylines, but right. essentially we're like in the same kind of genre of film. <laughs> right. You know, yes, we are. Exactly. We're definitely in some. It's a dark rom com. I was just gonna say <laughs> it's like some epic rom com right. with some kind of like always have a cliffhanger, and I'm not sure if it's a dark. I know, and then you said dark, yeah. But I'm just grateful because I know that I wouldn't have said what I just said about embracing change mm -hmm. even a week ago though. Like, so when you have these extraordinary moments of pressure, you know, like the, the cliche, it creates diamonds type thing. For me, it was 
deeper than an awakening. It was like an arrival, like Mm -hmm. a rebirth. Mm -hmm. And I am grateful for these experiences of suffering, quote unquote, because although I was crying before you came, you see the smile that I have right now. And I don't think I would be able to notice or you would be able to notice the amount of like joy that I feel had I not been in the space where you knew I didn't feel joy mm-hmm. and you knew that, you know, I was crying before you came or like, you know, those like to see this yeah. um, and to be able to talk about it and hopefully be able to walk people through the journey alongside of us. Yeah. You know, we are connected. We are, you know, we know that we're one. I'm for sure like you are connected in my path for like a reason. And I mean, that's the most important thing about being someone that leads people to change. And it's not lead people, you know, like you didn't lead me to change, you know, you kind of unlocked things that were in me um, by showing me by your example. Like all you had to do is literally call me and listen to me cry or listen to me like, and ask a question. It could sometimes be a rhetorical question, you know, and just sitting there and, and being present for me. And I think that's what change is. And, and being a change today is, is being present for yourself in order to be present for someone else. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That was well said. Thank you. Oh. I, I didn't, I didn't know I was going to get that type of love. So I appreciate it. I got it. Thank you. Um, let's put it back on you. Oh, excuse me. And let's talk about Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. So you are a co-founder of Black Lives Matter. People say mm-hmm. co-founder all the time because the definitions are so fluid. Um, I like to classify myself as a original member because An OG. OG. Okay. I mean, of course, my South Central ass has to somehow, <laughs> somehow gang bang, right? I learned that I'm a double OG now. A double OG? Because of my age. Oh, are we the same kind of ages? I don't remember your age. I'm 36. I'm 35 this year. Yeah. You're yeah. a double OG. Yeah. I am turning 35 October 30th. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm arriving. But, um, yeah. You're 34. Yeah. Don't say you're 35. I'm turning 35 is what I said. No. You're just 34. I'm just 34. Live in the moment. I'm just 34. I'm yes. 36. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll yeah. be 37 until that happens. <laughs> I just thought that um, we, like some people, um, I don't know when they, I thought we were in like different age brackets, but I thought you were, somehow I thought that, no, I thought we were the same age. I don't know. Anyway, um, I'm trying to figure that out. Um, Yeah. So Black Lives Matter, I like to call myself an OG. Yeah. Um, I had a mentor by the name of Melina Abdullah, who I met during my undergrad at USC and she became like spirit family. She was like a spirit mom, transitioned to a spirit sis as I became a triple OG almost. <laughs> and she was like, wait, you're getting older. You can't be my daughter. And so um, when the Trayvon Martin verdict came down, I like to say it that way because he was the one that was on trial and definitely wasn't Zimmerman. Right. I hardly ever say that man's name, but I had a visceral response. Like I yeah. cried and well to had a new child. Um, Jay Johnny was, you know, just a small baby and. I felt for Sabrina Fulton. Like I thought like I was losing my own child Mm -hmm. and that visceral response that it could have been my son and I could have been Sabrina made me call Melina. And I said, you know, you know, we've gone to rallies before, you know, all those things, but I was like, I knew it was different. 
you know, there's a difference between, you know, thinking, oh, what can I do? And this thing that I think as a dancer has helped me a lot, like Mm -hmm. I have to move, right? And so that moves you to action because when you, you know, when you choreograph things, it entails movement. It's not just like this idea of when I'm a theorist, theorist in academia, I'm in my brain and I'm just kind of writing and that's not actually like movement. But as a choreographer, I see a lot of the world in my mind as having to have a movement, a beginning, middle, and an end, a five, six, seven, eight. And so I was like, we have to go into the streets. And so we went with other mothers, with our children out into, you know, we go to the hotbed of arts and resistance, Lamert, And we then later meet with some of her students at Cal State LA. She was the chair of Pan-African Studies there. And then we meet up with Patrice Colors because mm-hmm. Tonda Seasway is an R, you know, Ella Baker is what I think um, Melina would call her. But she's like a journalist and she hit up Melina and I was with Melina day after day mm-hmm. during this time. Um, how s- synchronicity or being in the right place at the right time. I was actually a PhD student in San Diego at UC San Diego. Oh. And I was out here you know, during the months of the verdict because it was summer. And then I was going back and forth once, you know, we started Justice for Trayvon Martin with Patrice Colors. Mm -hmm. So with the text, you know, that Patrice Colors were having her and her group of folks coming together, you know, Melina and her students coming together and me being the nerd that I am, all the original stuff in my laptop, I was actually, you know, I'm moving. So I'm trying to archive I should have taken better care of it, but I have like press releases that I made when we were trying to go after Alec, not realizing that was something really incredibly like going after Nestle, you know, or different things like that, trying to boycott some of these entities that you like, you think you're going after Nestle, but you're going after like a hundred other corporations. You don't even know it's like, you know, pet food that Nestle owns and water and chocolate and all of these types of things. And I was just looking through some of those things, but all of those original things are in my apartment right now on the floor, you know? So um, I like to consider myself an original member because I think that I always felt a little bit eerie, like about classifying what we were doing as founders, you know, it wasn't to me an organization. It was like something that we needed to do. It was a necessity for our liberation. And I always want to say that to me, Black Lives, I'm justice for Trayvon Martin, Los Angeles, right? Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter as an organization, as a network and all of that happened out of the amazing organizing of the folks on the ground and still losing their lives in Ferguson. And I want to be clear about that. Yeah. So for me, I actually stepped away for a little bit between justice for Trayvon Martin, Los Angeles and um, Black Lives Matter because I you know, went to finish my master's. I told you I was in San Diego and I was in a PhD program. Mm-hmm. So I didn't assume that I would leave for six years. But then after two, I got my master's and then transferred to UCLA. And then that's yeah. when I was able to um, kind of get roped back in. Yeah. I thought I was like going to a birthday party at Melina's house or something. And she's like, oh, we're actually going to an action. I couldn't tell you on the phone. I was like, what? <laughs> and then after a little bit after that, I became a core organizer with Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was like, whatever the community wants, I'm going to be on board with that. And I'm going to help with that. Right. So this idea of I'm more of a group centered leader. So I think that we're all, you know, I guess, quote unquote, if you want the dictionary, we we'll call it co-founding. We were the original members. We were right. the ones that came together. Um, 
So yeah, that's why I think, you know, people all the time call me a co-founder, but there are three women who have coined themselves as co-founders. And so I also want to be very um, intentional about that language as well. I am an original member of Black Lives Matter. An original member is equally powerful too. It is. Because, you know, Black Lives Matter is something that literally changed the way people think about police brutality and, you know the endless amounts of murders of black and brown bodies that are happening under their watch. So to be part of that is, you know, incredible, but also that's a place of a lot of um, trauma too, Mm -hmm. vicarious trauma, you know, having to deal with so much pain and so much suffering. And then you have anger and frustration and you're Mm -hmm. just always kind of looking for a place of, you know, hope Um, Which leads to the hate you give, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So you were a consultant for that movie, um, which, you know, that movie is, it parallels, you know, the importance, the reality, the despair of the thing that drives me crazy, police killing unarmed black men, Mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So what was that experience like? So the experience is back to this thinking of synchronicities and thinking of, you know, being in the right place at the right time. George Tillman Jr., the director, Mm -hmm. is my godbrother. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he, him and his wife kind of adopted me before I even was like a a real teenager. (laughs) I think I was like, I think I was 13. Yeah, just 13. And just made it. I just made it. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, I've been reading scripts from him since I was younger and, and looking at authenticity in certain scripts. And, you know, he's always calling me up because he knows I'm a nerd. Like, what do you think about this? And mm-hmm. so I had always been unofficially, you know, been involved in, in a certain capacity, but never in such a capacity where he would get a book and just think of me because, you know, um, I was seen as kind of like a rebel and they couldn't believe like I was out there on the front lines and all this other stuff. And not to say that they didn't care about police brutality, but, you know, they are Hollywood producers. He produced, you know, the barbershop series. He mm-hmm. um, directed, he wrote and directed Soul Food. Mm-hmm. Like, come on, Soul Food. and The classic. The classic. And, and also makes you hungry. Every time the final scene. You're like, just everything. And it just reminds you of family. <laughs> it and does. Just all things that I love about Black folks is yeah. soul food, right? And so I get the to, soundtrack, the soundtrack, like everything. Mm-hmm. And so for me to be able to kind of be raised by, you know, Georgia and by soul food, you were raised. By, I was yeah. literally <laughs> raised by soul food, and you know, for me, it's it's an incredible experience to have them. You know, a little funny story about George. When I graduated from undergrad at USC, I was a valedictorian of black grad. And so he made it through to one of my graduations, although how busy he was. And he was just so proud. And at the time, I, you know, because I'm from South Central Los Angeles, I didn't know what a valedictorian was. Right. Like, I was, when they called me, I was like, yo, like, I thought I was like student body president or something. (laughs) I thought I was like most popular or something like in prom or something. I was like, yo, you got the wrong one. Like, I've yeah. just been like studying and da, da, da. I didn't know what it was. And they were like, you do know it's like you have the highest GPA of all the black students at UCL, at, at USC. And I was like, oh, yeah. Uh, totally. That's, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And so <laughs> I'm doing like a speech or something and I hadn't told them that I was pregnant. I was three months pregnant at the time. And so 
you know, George is so proud. He's like, you know, telling everyone about his sis that, you know, just graduated from USC, valedictorian, da, da, da. And then at my graduation party, I break it to him that I'm pregnant. And so he thought I ruined my life. Like he then started talking about how I ruined my life. Oh, I was no. telling like random people, like it's the, like a running joke that they thought I would not. And I had a summer program at Yale right after um, I graduated and I still went from four to seven months pregnant. I went to Yale by myself, not knowing what was going to happen with the future of me and having a baby daddy or any of that stuff. Yeah. I still went to Yale pregnant and did research and, you know, was jerking because that was my undergraduate research. I'll talk yeah. to you about um, street dance from South Central Los Angeles with a pregnant belly and and um, doing a presentation in front of all of Harvard and Yale and, you know, all the Ivy Leagues. And so now to this day, they still joke because they're like, you proved us wrong. Like you did it. And so for him to see that girl that he thought ruined his, ruined mm-hmm. his, his life, <laughs> ruined his life, ruined <laughs> what he thought my life should be. And for me to continue on with my son and for him to be the godparent, mm-hmm. he's his goddad. He's mm-hmm. St. Johnny's goddad. And for him to get a book about, you know, what would seem to be very similar to Black Lives Matter themes, he, gave it to me before it was even I think published and I read it. And then he, when he got the script, he was like, I, I want your help with this. And I helped, you know, so many other times, but I knew that I had to, and I knew that my politics didn't directly align. Cause it's not a black lives matter movie. It isn't, mm-hmm. you know, it is a young adult novel yes. that Angie Thomas wrote yeah. Angie, the amazing Angie Thomas wrote, and she wasn't necessarily an activist, right? She was a black woman with a voice who used it. Yes. And so that's what I saw in it. And I saw that me as a community organizer, I can take this with youth and I can use it to like start a conversation. And I was just so honored that everything would align, that he would be able to just say, I can ask my sister this. And so that is what was important to me about the hate you give, not necessarily if I thought it was the radical answer to anything that I felt as an activist, but the fact that this kind of story was being told on such a major platform in a way that I could have some kind of influence. I knew I couldn't change everything, but I knew that I can change some things where you do. I'm like, hey, you were quoted in the movie <sighs> by Issa Rae, which is actually yeah. her character. Yeah. Um, but that is pretty amazing. And in something that you just said, you said, you know, unarmed black men is what is your, mm-hmm. like, you know, I don't know if you wanted to, I don't know what you classified. It wasn't pet peeve, but like something that really bothers you. And for me, I had been doing research on since I my undergrad about how our body is never unarmed, you know, mm-hmm. to, to white people, they see us and they see our skin and that's the threat. Yeah. And for me to, I was on Al Jazeera and a little clip talking about that uh, and white supremacists got a hold to that clip and started looping it. And someone Googled me and I didn't even ever think to Google myself, but I met a new person and she was like, have you ever Googled yourself? I'm like, no. She was like, you might want to Google yourself. And it was like, Jamel Bell's an idiot. She said that, you know, black skin is the thread and da 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 and, and that clip. And so that was a point because of, of the quote. Yeah, because not of the movie, but this is previous. This oh, is, previous. I'm telling you how this got into the movie. Google you. Yeah, Google Shamel Bell, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes now. But if you put Shamel Bell idiot, there's going to be a whole bunch of, like, I don't sites. want this in here. Yeah, I know. I mean, but now, listen, you see it? What? <laughs> I never told you this. This is no. so funny. Okay, yeah, so this is how it gets in the movie, though, right? 
So from me saying this, it gets viral with these white supremacists and it's like hurting me so bad. And I get a, I get the script and I see that they attribute it because now it gets into consciousness and everyone's talking about how the skin is in TV shows. People are talking about it because at first people were saying, hands up, don't shoot. And I would tell all the organizers, don't say that. Stop saying that because it doesn't matter where our hands are. It doesn't have, matter if you have Skittles. It doesn't matter if you have a sandwich. It doesn't have, matter if you yeah. have a cell phone. It doesn't matter if you have a Bible. Stop saying hands up. It doesn't matter where our hands are. Our skin is the weapon. Our body is the weapon. And so things started to shift in our organizing. And so when the movie script came out, I saw them attributed to someone else. And I visibly had a reaction because of this that you're reading right now. Is it, I'm looking at your face. There's a, a lot says, of them. I'm pretty sure I know everything there is even mildly interesting to know about Chanel Bell from just viewing a few seconds of an interview with her. She's overly educated in race politics and completely worthless in any other respect. Probably owes a lot in college loans. And if she gets a job, it'll be a barista or she'll blame Whitey for her lack of success. Pretty sad. You know what's funny about that? That's not even true. <laughs> like, like, whoever this person loans, is. Though, but... I mean, yeah. I mean, shit. So do I. But the interesting thing is, is that your um your overly educated self is teaching at an Ivy League school. Right. I'm not a barista. You are not a barista. But I think you're like, even if you were a barista, no, I'm kidding. You wouldn't even be that at all. But it's just so, it's interesting. It's just, oh, people. People. But when I was that person that we talked about in fear. Oh, yeah. I was reading that and I didn't even know I had an imposter syndrome at UCLA. And one of my professors put my paper on the projector and said my writing sucked around that same time and gave out cupcakes to his favorite students. And all of this was happening at the same time. So I was damn near suicidal around this time and had the pressure of being an organizer on the ground and trying to be a single mom and trying to, you know, all these things. Absolutely. So get bringing it back, you know, I talk in tangents to the hate you give. It's important because, you know, my brother's assistant sees me like look and I'm visibly like kind of upset because it kind of brought back the this website to me and I told her I was like yeah I said that and all the white supremacists you know kind of went after me she's like what and she looked at the date and she said yeah you said this before what we're quoting on here and I was like yeah like people know I said that and she's like Wow. And I didn't think that it would, it, would, it would ever be changed. I didn't know. They didn't tell me until Issa Rae was like, oh, we said your name in the movie. I said your name in the movie. And I know Issa Rae, actually. But that was that off script? It was in the script. It was in the script. Okay. It was in the script. I read it when I was editing, you know, like when I was consulting and going through and seeing, I always look at my brother's script for authenticity and, and, yeah. and things like that. And I saw something I said in it that caused trauma and I had a response and his assistant noticed and it was changed. And most people think I put my name in it because I consulted. I'm like, no, I would never just put my name in it, but I wish I did have that much pull. But it's just the <laughs> synchronicity that I'm talking about with the hate you give. Like wow. I knew I had to be a part of this. Yeah. And I know now that there's young girls that are still attached to the movie, you know, and I did, I was able to have Angie Thomas donate some books to South Central Youth. And we had like 
um, read-ins where we um, took books and actually went through it, had high school students go through the book and see how the book is very different from the movie, right. but why the, those artistic choices were made. Um, I had actually done a music video for Issa Rae um, 10 years prior for her brother, who now sometimes his name is Animal then, but I'm not sure what he's called now, but um, he was in a group called Fly Guys, and because I worked with uh, jerks, and yeah. they were doing, like, a jerk and spoof, yeah. I choreographed for the video and brought all the, the Rangers, which was, like, the number one jerk crew at the time, yeah. brought the Go-Go Girls, who were the girl version of them, and I choreographed the video for them, and so, yeah, for Issa Rae to say my name in a movie, and I hadn't really connected with her just briefly yeah. when, with her rise to success, yeah. and for her to walk up to me on set when I was just visiting my brother and it's so funny I never was on the set um intentionally like they didn't hire me to go on the set yeah I was going to a funeral when they were filming in Atlanta and they were filming the protest scenes while I was there and so that is why you see a cameo of me and my son because we were there for funerals and um I see Issa Rae on the set and she says I say your name so that's how I found out. Wow. Yeah. So going back to, you know, having my godbrother be the director, having this beautiful black woman, Andy Thomas, who's now a dear friend of mine, um, and then going into the community, what you should have done with this movie at any point of, um, of your level of understanding as someone that wants to be a change today, mm-hmm. you go and you provide opportunities for people who don't have the same level of understanding. And so for me, I chose to use youth, the people that the book was actually written for, to teach in these readings. So they went to their favorite, you know, um, quotes and verses and they talked about systems of oppression that you didn't even think that youth would even know but I worked with some of the most amazing youth um these group uh, of youth called students deserve and they actually won their fight to end random searches in LAUSD schools so I don't know if you know but when your student yeah. goes through they go through metal detectors or they're randomly searched or you yeah. know they, they take things like highlighters and gum and take you know, journals because they don't want them to tag on it and, you know, asthma medication or different things like that. And it's a criminalization process. Absolutely. So it's, you know, stop and frisk, but in school. So they right. fought, these youth that I worked with fought to end that. And Aww. they did. They just won it, I think, last month. But um, I had those students to be able to watch the movie and also have discussions about where does it deviate from our radical dreams and where does it open up space for us to have those freedom dreams and yeah. what would have we have done if we would have been put in that situ- situation and you know um spoiler alert the drug kingpin goes to jail at the end and it looks as if it's celebrated it's not the same ending um exactly as the book mm-hmm. but what does that mean to have that and do you feel attention from the, a movie that also displays the talk in one of the first scenes yeah. and also displays what it means to have, you know, um, the 10 point program. That's something that's memorized by his kids and the family dynamic, yeah. with the father, like all of these things and the complexities of what it means to be a black person in America. That's what that movie meant to me. And so, yeah, that's my role in the hate you give. And I am grateful to have been in divine appointment to be able to not allow my own feelings of what I think is right mm-hmm. and what I think people should take from any movie um, and allow it 
to open up space for people to be met at whatever level of understanding that they are in. Mm -hmm. Well said. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about, you've mentioned it already, but let's talk about health because we have some things in common. Exciting, right? Yeah. (laughs) So in in addition to doing all the things you've already have accomplished and what you'll continue to accomplish and also um, single mom going through school, you have some health things going on. Yeah. I've always been, um, my uncle Donnie would call me a patient is what he called. That's my, my nickname. It's like patient. I was always in the doctors. I was always sick. And at nine years old, I was diagnosed with an irritable bowel disease. And so I've always had these if you think you have a stomach virus or a stomach flu, I feel that every day of my life. You see, I gave you water, but I'm sipping on what? Oh, yeah. But I sip on ginger ale, too. Yeah. I got a little jealous. I'm it's fine. so sorry. No, it's okay. I had it on the plane on the way here. <laughs> I, wish I, I love was... ginger ale. I drink it all the time. Okay. Well, yeah. when I, I wish I would have known because no. I would have offered you. This was my last one. No, no, no. You deserve um, it. Yeah. So, but for me, I don't really like ginger ale. It's like my stomach is never settled. So mm-hmm. I had these feelings of um, stomach flu every day yeah. when I was nine. And it's like, you know, I don't have to describe what irritable bowels is, but um, <laughs> yeah. And also ulcers and all of these things oh, from yeah. nine years old and chronically underweight and um, also, you know, having asthma and eczema and, you know, like anything that was autoimmune related, I had. And I, I know now that I'm a spiritual being that is extremely sensitive. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the gifts that I do have is um, clear cognizance and clear sentience. And mm-hmm. cognizance is like I know through my body, right? And then mm-hmm. clear sentience is just like through my senses, I know things, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we live in an energetic world and there's a lot of forces that are not always of flight, then I'm going to feel those things in my body. So I yeah. know that that exacerbates things, but that doesn't mean that the diagnoses aren't real, right? right. So aside from having like autoimmune issues, then it is now um, more autoimmune issues, you know, after organizing with BLM um, and being so much trying to be on the front lines, it deteriorated my health. I I can no longer, you know, when we were occupying LAPD, I was there for every 18 days. I was, you know, putting together, that's where I started street dance activism, dancing in the streets and, you know, trying to create joy out of the mourning and the pain and the Mm -hmm. grief. And then I'm expounding or, or I don't know what to get, like giving off. Mm-hmm. so much energy and I'm not, I'm being depleted yeah. and I'm not, it's the reciprocity just wasn't there and it created problems within my body and my body literally broke down. I was extremely exhausted as I always am with autoimmunes. You're, you're exhausted. I kept running low grade fevers. So when I was working on the hate you give, I was going through the premieres. I was actually flying to other cities before it actually came out. I screened it with activists because I wanted them to see where people's levels of understanding or where we could put out mm-hmm. into society so that they can actually digest it mm-hmm. and knowing who our audience was. And so during this time where I'm like meeting up with the Gina Belafontes and the Linda Sarsars and all these other people like traveling to, to screen the hate you give and to get their opinions, I was also having the flu, I thought. 
like low-grade fever and these flu-like symptoms for months. Come to find out, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis because I was wow. achy. You know that I, you know the flu. You think you have body aches, and I was like, it must be the flu. Right. You know, I'm tired and I got body aches, and you know I do have sniffle, which is I have allergies too. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm putting all these things together, and here you are as a dancer, choreographer, someone that's been performing since they were two years old, and everything's aching, and in the morning you can barely get out of the bed, and you know you are being stripped of the way that you literally theorize in the world, like Mm -hmm. through my body. And so what does it mean to push through physical discomfort? What does it mean to push through emotional discomfort? I also am, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 16. Mm -hmm. So I have mental and physical disabilities that are permanent. And I like to say hashtag faux life. Faux life. (laughs) You know, they're chronic. And I have to be resilient. And when you look at me, you know, sometimes I might need, I have a handicap placard because I might have my pain going throughout my entire body. Right. (laughs) When they see you, they, you know, even when I need, might need a wheelchair at the airport because I can't walk all the, you know, they're, they'll take everyone around me. They'll actually say, but you look fine. Right. Or, well, good thing you look like that because, you know, it's not that bad and not knowing that everything is aching and, yeah. uh, you know, that type of thing. So I'm also an advocate for what it means like to look like this. Invisible illness. Invisible illness. Yeah. It's like a real thing. And if you look the way we look, you cannot be sick. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. I parked somewhere. I was actually meeting friends to go for a walk. And I parked... Um, close to the entrance because you always think about your steps like, how far you have to go no one knows we have to count steps yeah you're just like can I go to the grocery store today and people don't realize like if you depending on how your day is going from the back of just a trip around the grocery store to your car is like exhausting 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 so I you know parked like closer to the thing but it was in a full-on puddle and I was like no so then I moved, um, and the next closest one was a handicapped parking spot. And I have a placard. Mm-hmm. Put my placard up, get up. This guy circled around, white dude. And mm-hmm. he was like, um, hey, you should know that you're, and that's a, um, a handicapped parking spot. I'm like, yes, I'm aware. He's like, well, it's handicapped. I'm like, yeah, I have a placard. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, oh. And he looked at me and he gave me a look, and I was like, I have an invisible illness. I have a heart condition forever, forever, which means I have a placard. Have a good day. Oh, yeah. Same thing. It's like I'm getting out of the hospital and a white woman. It's always white people, right? I'm sorry to say it. I'm sorry. White women are like. White women are the worst. (laughs) I was trying to say the word. for my white friends. I know. We love you. (laughs) But they're like the policing of the the handicap placard. And she's like, I'm sorry, but you just look fine. And you, and at the time I had a license plate that said little sexy before it said. (laughs) It was like a high school nickname. And she was like, and you, your, your license plate says that. So, and I was like, ma'am, I literally, you want my hospital bills? I'll definitely trade you. Yeah. Would you like, like to see them? Would you like to? I know it's the, it's tough. And then I, I travel a lot. So I always do pre-board. Yeah. Yeah. Because my cardiologist was like, the airport is one of the worst places for you to be mm-hmm. just because the airports are awful in general, but like just the normal amount of like stress people have to get to their flight and how far is your gate and where's your gate did you make it on time do you have time to get food that's like not good for my heart Mm. so um usually i'm in tachycardia when i'm at the 
airport. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm exhausted. So yeah. I pre-board so I can, one, take the time to put my luggage up because my left arm has its own feelings. And so sometimes it'll take me a little bit longer to put my suitcase up in other days. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like on the armrest, on the headrest. <laughs> On my shoulder. And then, like, other times, the it's, like, a one. Yeah. And I don't want to be forced or, like, feel bad. So that's why I do it. But and one particular time, it was Southwest Airlines, um, which I travel a lot to come here to L.A. from Oakland. And, um, or maybe, yeah, no, it was Southwest. And my sister was with me because we are coming back here or something. And um, I was like, I need pre-word. And she was like, for what? And I was like, I have an invisible illness. Um, well, no, you can't get pre-word. I'm like, I have a heart condition. That means I need, I have to literally take time to get onto the plane. She was like, well, you can just go with the families. First of all, I don't need to be around anyone's fucking kids. Like, I don't need mm-hmm. any of that. I don't like kids in the airports. I feel like <laughs> they're just, parents let them be too free. <laughs> Not all parents, but there's a lot of, it, just like, you know, curb your child or whatever, yeah. <laughs> bring your kid to you. But um, I'm like, no, you know. And so my sister was like, she needs pre-board. Like, I have to help her put her luggage up and blah, blah, blah. I bring my handicap locker because of that. Yeah, I mean, I have my handicap locker with me right now, actually. But I um, I was like, no, I have an invisible illness and, you know, you're going to do it. So if you can't do that, I'm just going to go to someone else because I can get it. And she was telling me how I couldn't get it. And all these mm. other things were super negative. And, um, and I was like, all right, I'm gonna go to someone else. And then she begrudgingly gave it to me. I sent a strong worded email to yeah, Southwest Airlines. Should. And I was like, you need to educate your staff about invisible illness. Because just because I'm not in a wheelchair mm-hmm. or I have a sling or a crutch or I mm-hmm. look visibly decrepit or old mm-hmm. or whatever, it doesn't mean that I can't. I'm not someone who's afraid of flying. I'm someone who's afraid of passing out because I can yeah. pass out on a plane, you know, and I want to sit down. So I, I don't have that happen. And they were like super apologetic. They gave me a credit which was, and, and that wasn't what I wanted, yeah. but this, it's just the, it's just exhausting having to choose when you want to educate someone. Thank you for sending yeah. that email though, because I've sent maybe two and I got tired because literally every time I travel, it happens. My, one of my best friends, the one that you just met, she was just mentioning it to someone else. She's like, have you ever traveled with Chamel? Like when she literally needs the wheelchair because everything hurts and we're with her and telling them that she needs the wheelchair and they'll do us last. Like she experienced it like with me and it was one of the most dehumanizing experiences like they just look at you and 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 say oh we didn't know it was for you like they brought a wheelchair i said it was for me they took all the people that looked older or different things had the crutches of the cast yeah so thank you for speaking up about that and i try it all the time (laughs) i try to you know, educate people, but I'm just tired and I'm exhausted. And, you know, even this, even with friends and family or people just like, well, you've done all of this. So aren't you, you're fine. Like, you know, and they don't know what you feel like in the inside, but the fact that we're overachievers in their eyes or that we've gone to the the heights of we're doctors, you know, so for us to have these invisible illnesses, they expect so much of us. They do. They do. And I don't have to tell you why I need extra time or assistance or my handicap placard is up. And sometimes I don't because I'm like, I don't have time for you today. Other times I'm like, you're going to, you're going to get all this education and you're going to change your perspective about things. And I even change my perspective once I get a handicap placard. I'm like, you know what? There are probably some, there are not probably, there are young people 
who have a handicap placard because they're dealing with similar things like us. But there's also still young people who are using their grandma's placard. Like, there's that, too. Like, I get it. And the cops, have you ever gotten stopped by the cops? No. Oh, yeah. So me. I got stopped by a cop at Target who decided to tell me that I needed to give him proof of my placard. And I have gotten harassed so much and people actually have given me tickets at the meter and known that my placard was up but still gave me a ticket because they said that there was no placard up um, because they wanted, they thought I was using someone else's. Like my, mm. they, they were just trying to stick it to me. I've had yeah. so many of that. I never take it down. So I know it was up. And my professor that was actually having a meeting with me saw it up. And so she had to write a letter just to get it, you know, to, you know like mm-hmm. thrown out. But I had to end up getting an actual license plate because it was so annoying that I would continue to get tickets even though I would have it up. Because Do you have people. a placard with your license plate too? Uh, so the new one, the Dr. Chamel Bell, I had to give up the handicap one. But I'm fine with that now because I, you know, whatever. But yeah. back, you know, before this one, I used to have a license plate because they used to, like, yeah. get on me. And so at the time that I was stopped by the police, though, I was walking into the Target. I was getting actually getting some, like, medication or something because <laughs> I was, like, um, achy everywhere. And I was trying to find some kind of, like, topical. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, ah. Yeah. And so that was – it was so ironic to – like literally be going to try mm-hmm. to get Epsom saw and different mm-hmm. things like that. And the guy, he didn't believe me. I said, it's on, I don't need proof of handicap because it's on my actual license plate. And this is my car registered to only me. Yeah. So that's your proof. I don't yeah. have a placard with me right now because you get a placard too. But I, yeah. I'm like, I'm not going to search for a placard. Here's my registration. Right. This is my name. Right. That's my license plate. And it says disabled. I know. So that point, I was like, I'm done. It is beyond frustrating. And I'm actually, like, I I still have a temporary placard because part of me was like, this is going to be temporary. But now that I have a, like, you know, a definitive faux life diagnosis, and it's like, wow, I'm about to get the blue placard, you know, which is fine. Like, and I, and I, I, I'm going to use it. I'm going to need it. And the reason why I actually first got my placard was because um sometimes it because I have orthostatic hypertension in addition to other things moving from a seated to standing position I'm a falls risk right so I have to open my door and put my feet on the ground yeah and I just take you. a minute before I transition yep, to me standing too. and I'm like oh okay we're gonna do this particularly if it's a longer drive like it's you know 10-15 minutes it won't happen, but it also depends on my medication, my hydration. There's all these other things, but particularly mm-hmm. if it's a longer drive, it's going to take me a minute to mm-hmm. do that. So I knew, like, going to Beachella that I would need a placard. Mm-hmm. And so I got one. My doctor's like, of course, here you go. And uh, just because the ride, we were, like, 30 minutes away from the thing, and I would have to get out of the car, and, like, my sister's driving and stuff. And I knew that I would have access to um, ADA you know, stage, to sit down, mm-hmm. access to closer parking, yeah, access yeah, yeah. to get, like, you know, the golf cart. Can you talk about she went to Beach? I did. Oh, my God. I think you were sorry. I did. I did. I did. My whole, like, and that was, like, one of the hardest things. It was a beautiful day. But it was one of the hardest things in my life to witness Beyonce in person. But we had tickets, um, you know, like, almost a year in advance because we knew she was going to be there. Yeah, so it was, yeah. we bought them as soon as, you know, we could. But I thought I was going to be recovered by then because my heart thing initially was, like, a heart inflammation, heart infection yeah, type yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah, no, I'll be fine. But then 
that wasn't the case of doom and gloom, you know, whatever. But in order to see her, we got there like at three. She went on at 1135. Wow. And so we didn't move. We did not move. So because I had, um, my sister and I actually had ADA bands so we could go in these areas. Um, there's like a bathroom. They give you water. Like, oh, did a relatively good job. Relatively good job. But um, we, um, I, I brought, I brought in food. You're not supposed to bring in food. I was like, yo, I'm ADA. I take medication. I have a heart you thing. Need food. I need food. And they're like, no problem. So, um, so we had, we both got like some water and something to eat before we sheltered in place. Because once you were in there, you could not move because everyone was there to like see Beyonce. So it got to a point where it's like, you could sit down in between the different shows around the stage, but it got so crowded that you could not even like sit down like at all. And I was in serious tachycardia. My heart rate was 150 for hours which is not healthy at all and I'm like popping pills I'm like hot I'm trying to drink water but like not too much so I wouldn't have to pee it was like a whole thing and then when she came on I was like okay it's totally worth it yes great but we didn't leave until or we didn't get home until like or to the hotel until like 2 30 so like I didn't eat real food I did not go to the bathroom and I was just like it was just a lot like on my body I was like super tired but then I had this Beyonce high it was a really interesting thing but um yeah so now like while I was there I'm like this is my life now like my life is different Different. like I'm no longer the person who's gonna stand on the floor for concerts like I can't I can't stand for long periods of time like it's so it's not my life anymore it's not and I have to like learn how to, you know, how to embrace that. And do you mind if I ask you a question about Of course. That? Um, how did that shift feel for you? Because I'm experiencing that shift and like different levels, because I get different yeah. levels of diagnosis. So you have a heart condition, but I've had like all the different levels of yeah. different. Like it went from, you know, my lungs to, you know, my stomach to my mental to my body. It's like progressively all areas yeah. shutting down. So my mobility has gone down, but I've yeah. shifted like gradually. I've been sick since I was nine. Yeah. Well, since before that, I had asthma off and on since I was a small child in, a, in the hospital. Mm-hmm. I've always been in the hospital. But for you to have that like shift, yeah. How did that feel for you? Uh, you know, it was annoying and I didn't want to deal with that um, at all. I, I was prepared for it to be temporary. That's what I, that's why yeah, I can't imagine. So, I yeah. know that I've always, I've only known bees. Yeah. I'm fine with things and like health wise being temporary. But when I like December of last year, there, my cardiologist was like, well, but then in January it was like, you have coronary artery spasms for the rest of your life. The orthostatic hypertension um, and the um, inappropriate sinus tachycardia may go away, but I will have coronary artery spasms for the rest of my life. So for those of you who don't know, um, it's a spasm in my heart, the arteries in my heart and and vessels. So a cramp that you would have like in your calf or your foot. A Charlie horse. Yeah, exactly. Happens in my chest every day. Sometimes they're just like, hey. Other times they're like, listen, you bitch, we're going to take the breath out of you. We're going to sit you down and we may send you to the emergency room. So that's like full spectrum. Um, And so to have that, I was like, oh my gosh, I now, my entire life is different. So dating is different because once you say like, 
I can't drink as much. Like I have one drink a day, but I usually don't drink because it's just easier to not dehydrate myself. Medications. Yeah. Yes. There's that depending on what pain med I'm on. Right. Yeah. But, um, so I don't drink as much. And so at some point on the date, I'll just be like a heart thing. And then guys automatically are like, Oh, well I probably can't have sex with you. I'm like, but no, no, you can. <laughs> That's a stress reliever. <laughs> like, let's do that. But <laughs> you know, so there's like that and like, it's going to be like the partner and what it's going to be like to have a kid because my heart is forever different. And whenever I, and hopefully can get pregnant, like, then I don't know what that's going to mean for like my body, you know, again, mm. concerts, where I park, I'm thinking about what I'm going to wear, the heat, I, have to, I can't be in direct sunlight. I don't like, I'm a Caribbean person. And so fuck that. I'm gonna do it anyway. But I'm like, mindful of the shade and like staying hydrated. And I have a fan. Like there's all these things that make the it. preparation. Yeah. People don't understand it. So yeah. One more crazy question about this. How long does it take you to get out of the car sometimes? Um, I'm pretty good. So I could do it like within a couple of minutes, but it doesn't awesome. mean that. Thank you. But it doesn't mean that, um, I may have a weird like walk or something. Um, you know, so I ask because I often can perform normal all the way until I get home in my garage. Oh, no, the end of the day is And different. I cannot. No. Oh, wait. Let me say that again then. No, I will sit in my car sometimes. I see what you're saying. I yeah. can. Yeah, at the end of the day, I will sit in my car and I will check emails. <laughs> I'll be on my phone. I'll be like, okay, I'm going to get out of my car. Because, you know, when you have um, chronic pain, uh, inflammation, invisible illness, things that we're dealing with, you are tired by the end of the day. You're just done you know, and so it's affected my social life because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm out here hustling, <laughs> doing my thing for my business. But, um, like if I go to a networking thing or if I'm doing like today, I have a talk that I'm doing later today, it's going to be hard. It's, I'm going to be exhausted, you know, and I have to like talk to people and the energy, you know, you to do that. So then I may not go on a date or I may not hang out with friends mm-hmm. as much. Um, because my bed and my couch are my best friends. Um, I don't eat. Like, it's horrible. I do not eat because I'm, like, too tired to eat. I'll leave the stove on, a gas stove. Same. I left the gas stove on multiple times. People are like, turn it off. I'm like, you don't, first of all, you don't know my life. <laughs> and so for me, making my quesadilla or whatever simple thing that I made, and I do love to cook, but I haven't been cooking because then I'm on my feet and then I get tired. doesn't mean I can't do it. It's just I have to do things, you know, differently. Um so I, I am actually in therapy every week to adjust to this new life of mine. Yeah, well, every week since January. So I'm, I'm better with accepting it. But this fucking handicap placard, for some reason, I don't want to move from red to blue. It was a difficult process yeah, for me, too. Yeah, so, because I'm, I'm like, that's... It's a stigma to it as well that I wish that we would just destigmatize. And I want us to... Like, so I had a, a partner's um, stepmom who pretty much like I had someone that would um, kind of ridicule me for using it because they knew me and sometimes I'm mobile and things like that. But like, well, you don't have to use it right now. And I'm like, this is something that I can, I was given because I have a permanent disability so I can use it. Yeah, it wasn't like you 
a physician gave it to you. Yes. A physician had a class that had to write in, you know, your ICD-10 codes yes. in there. So it's like this idea that, and, 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 and I know for sure, because we may be, quote unquote, a little bit more able-bodied than others, mm-hmm. we know there's a spectrum. So I... People don't realize when I drive in a parking lot, I'm looking at how many handicaps are open, how many other spaces are open. Mm-hmm. And if there's a space that's nearby that and there's like way more handicap open, then I'll park in the handicap because I'm like, oh, someone could park in this regular space. But yeah. if there's, you know, no handicap, like I'm always I negotiating. Do and I'm like, OK, well, this is a space where someone can get out on the right side versus the left side exactly. or those keys that are close together. So I can get out, you know, so I think about that all the, yeah. the time, but it's, yeah. I mean, I have to work on my own thing with just continually full is fully accepting. I have accepted it, but this is just the one thing that annoys me, but, um, well, it's an always, I'm here for you. Well, thank you. It's someone uh, with a blue Packard, uh, blue, blue, blue um, Packard team. Yes. Blue Packard team. Like I'm going to, you know, I will, uh, I will make that switch, um, in September. That's when it, it will happen. Cause this is like my fourth yeah, one. And so. it's not, and you're fabulous and you know that. Oh I, know? yeah, I know. I'm, I'm yeah. fabulous. It's just like that yeah. one thing that's yeah. left. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's important to say how amazing we are to do the things that we're doing. And I mean, the, the, the parallels and the contrast of like, I'm, I'm not a mom, but I look forward to being a mom. Um, and you have overcome so many things and you've probably obviously at times fought the change, but you really at a younger age figured out how to embrace this. And it's truly connected to the fact that you were in and out of the hospital and you were dealing with different things and you weren't like a normal kid. And It took me eight years to get out of undergrad because I would start a semester and three weeks and go into the hospital for two weeks and yeah. then have to lose, you know, um, a quarter when I go back and they're like, no, we can't. You know, it's just, I would lose entire quarters as a student because I would have to go into the hospital and I'm an A-plus student. Yeah. And so imagine... Obviously. I know. Yeah. And then, or the only time I would get something that wasn't an A plus or an A is because I was in the hospital Mm -hmm. and like, or professors just like, I can't, I got to go on sabbatical. I can't grade your paper. So I'm going to give you an incomplete, but I'm not coming back. So you have to withdraw. You can't withdraw from one. You have to withdraw from the inquire quarter. And I had A pluses. So and, or, or dealing with the symptoms of trying to, and I did my first four years of college without any, um, um, accommodations. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that you could have, that I could have accommodations. Yeah. So, you know, and then dealing with professors that know you have accommodations, but they're just ableist mm-hmm. and try to dock you down because you turned in a paper late, even though it exceeded everything everyone else did, but you didn't turn it in on time. And I'm like, ma'am, I can't get out of the bed, but you're ma'am, ma'am, you know, well, so. you know, the interesting thing is now the tables have turned because you are now going to be the professor, right? And um, the amount of empathy, sympathy, care, mm-hmm. compassion, and concern that you're going to have for your students is going to, I know you don't like to change the world, but it is literally going to change the world because you're helping them think and see things differently about themselves Do and the world. you see those masks up there? 
Yes. There are only some of them, but those are my students. So I've been teaching for five years because I'm in an arts-based program, and so yeah. we don't get funding for our PhDs. We have to work. Yeah. We have to teach. And because of the ways that other professors taught or, you know, mentored to me in a way that may seem like academic hazing, I decided to do what Bell Hooks taught me in um, teaching to transgress this engaged pedagogy. So mm-hmm. I do life with my students and I'm vulnerable and they know about my conditions. Mm-hmm. And I, when they come in, I ask them if they feel free to disclose anything. And I help them through the journey of getting, you know, um, accessible education and things like that. And I literally have students who like make their projects extremely incredible to leave them with me mm-hmm. and I'm not going to get rid of them. I'm going to put them in oh, no. and my Dartmouth or wherever I land, because I know that it's because I was treated the way that I was in, in during processes um, to have been in quote unquote um, a black culture, black protest class and doing, you know, work on the ground in Flint raising money for the water poisoning with Janelle Monet and Stevie Wonder and all these things, doing my assignment also while sick and all these things and doing mm-hmm. Black culture, Black protests. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, being met with not the A that everyone else got, you know, because maybe I turned in some project a little bit later, but then I ended up turning, a, you know, assignment into far beyond what it is and doing exactly what we were learning in the class right. in the world right. that an experience like that is such a blessing now because I am sure that all of my students have a rubric so that I know that they know that you're the grade they're going to get but also I encourage them to go above and beyond I encourage them to tell me and disclose if you know I had a student that said I didn't know if I should tell you or not but I've been absent because my mother has cancer and I would bring you a doctor's note but when I'm with her I told her I don't have school because we're Asian and she doesn't want me to miss any class but my mom was just diagnosed with cancer and I'm sorry I'm going to be there for her Mm -hmm. and you know having that vulnerability about Mm -hmm. these are people with actual lives Mm -hmm. and I'm more concerned about how are you getting through life how is your soul doing and are you learning what I'm teaching you in this class or what we're teaching each other and these students have the best papers and the best projects and that was because I didn't haze them. I did life with them. And I'm just so grateful to be able to shift academia in that way, where I'm like always hit up by my students, like, can I see you? This is what I have going on. Mm-hmm. Oh, I took what you assigned in class or what you challenged me to do in classes. I'm always like, don't do this for your assignment. If you are thinking you're doing this just to get an A for me, then you've got this all wrong. You should probably take another course. Yeah. But I'm questioning whether they are doing things that mean anything to them or the people in their community or their family. So one of my students is um, Caitlin. Um, She's a gymnast at uh, UCLA. She graduated and she went viral for um, doing like she had a Michael Jackson routine at one time. Oh my God, I love that routine. Yeah, and then she did Beyonce women heroine afterwards. So she was in my class, Artist Social Action and she was one of like all of my students are dear so I I can't say she's one of my favorite students because like I love my students and um one of the assignments that I had them is to use their talent for a a social purpose or a greater purpose and Mm -hmm. she started writing poetry and doing her poetry in front of people in my class like the first time she was like reading her poetry and she did it and um when I didn't know that she was 
a viral gymnast because, you know, I'm a single mom. Da, 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 da. Like, I didn't know. But um, she started using her work to speak on the platform, the issues that we were talking about. And I mean, started using her platform to speak on the issues that we were talking about. And the crazy thing is um, she asked me to be her faculty, like advisor for her project or senior project or something. And I'm not really like a faculty at the time. I'm a TA. Mm -hmm. So we got another professor to kind of be like the liaison between us. And I got a chance to work with her weekly and talk about, she turned her poetry into like a, like a poetry book and a photography book that she's going to come out with. And I got a chance to like look through it and edit. But most importantly, I got to talk to her about joy. Like I was more, Mm. Um, every week talking about like what brings you joy what makes yeah. you happy and like going through yeah. like your wholeness and going through the shifts in her life and what does it mean to go viral one time and didn't think she was going to go again she went viral again do you know this is a life-changing moment for me as a professor when she goes on good morning um, america or good morning something and she does that poem that she was writing with me like she that i edited helped edit with her one of the poems. So can you imagine, I see my student, she's gone viral again. And everyone is talking about the joy that she had. And that was some intentional joy. We've talked through that. Mm -hmm. And people saw that. And then I'm so proud of her because she was reading her poetry for the world. And the fear of going viral again was gone because she did it twice mm -hmm. and even more viral the second time. And she was in her joy. Sorry, I'm like getting like teary-eyed. Wait, I what was up? I said, I'm getting teary-eyed. There we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> not apologizing for it, but, and for her to later, you know, invite me to galas where she's now like seen as a social justice work. They, they don't know who I am, these yeah. people. So I'm going to like a gala with her yeah. and I'm like sitting by the side and she's on the like red carpet and it's for social justice. And I'm yeah. like looking like, also wonderful. Also, you know, you are a double OG in that. I know. I know. I know. And, but it's interesting. But that's what you do. Like, if you're doing life right, you are able to uplift other people. And the easiest way to do that is helping them find their joy. Mm -hmm. People of any age can be in a position to find their joy but it's a choice to not be there because you feel like you have to have this nine to five or you feel like you have to be mm -hmm. in this relationship or you feel like you can't have some impact that whether it changes the world or the person next to you, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. everyone has the power to do it. We just have choices on whether or not we want to tap into it. You've been tapping away. I know. I'm, let me check the time. I didn't even check. Um, what time is it? Da -da 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 -da. It is 1.05. Okay. In a little bit, I have yeah. to um, send a text to Marcia. Yeah, no problem. We're actually going to um, wrap up. Um, but anyway, I, just to finish that sentence, um, I say that to say the instances that I've had where I've had hardship in academia, especially with my health or people not understanding why I'm in the streets and not necessarily doing my my research or work in the ways that they expected of me. Like I live my life every day integrated. So um, me as a scholar, me as a dancer, me as a, a mom, all of these things. Like I brought my son with me to class and thank God I had amazing professors. Alan Polly Roberts probably passed away and I know she's watching over me, but um, they allowed me to bring my son to school. And so that was like, 
a game changer because mm-hmm. Sejani is, you know, one of the youngest, like, little baby graduates from UCLA's World Arts and Culture Dance Department because yeah. they gave me the, the freedom. And then it kind of set a precedent. Like, if we need to bring our kids, like, other you know, students are bringing their kids and to kind of shift the way that we are doing academia. And I'm so grateful for the hardships that I had because it made me make a way and therefore made a way for other things. Like mm-hmm. I've done things with my um, PhD process that set precedent. Like I was able to allow for, you know, we have to get foreign language requirements. And I had up to three years levels of Spanish. I could have tested out of Spanish and things like that. But just because of the ways that academia academia is set up for rich white people to survive, especially males. (laughs) And so Uh, (laughs) when you have things like foreign language requirements and um, you know, you can have people that are international students come in and they say, oh, my home language is this and I'm working in this and they just get waived. And then you have black students who are working on black communities and they're translating African-American vernacular and Ebonics that white people actually have books and, and do talks and make a whole bunch of money saying that it's a distinct language. But we can't say, oh, this is my home language and get it waived. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. So do you know I petitioned and fought with my amazing advisor, who, you know, is a white man, who helped me navigate that so that there's precedent that, look, we're going to be treated with the same respect of our languages and our research as other folks. Mm -hmm. So, yes, my home language is African-American vernacular. And that is what I'm transcribing. Thank you. Give me my degree. You get what I'm saying? So that other, you know, folks who are not working in a in a language that's outside of their own, if we're doing autoethnography like I'm doing myself in a cultural right. ethnographer, we right. shouldn't be having to be in academic hazing and jump into hoops, especially if you know that I am proficient in another language. Hazing is literally the worst. No, it is. It's, it's, it's literally us. Yeah, and I remember like crying with some dumbass shit my advisor said and I called my mom who's a PhD and I was like this is horrible and she's like it's just part of the process yeah no I don't want to and that. I was like how come you just didn't tell me the truth like at least if I knew that it was so toxic and so brutal and intentional then I'd be prepared for it and I also let a lot of things go mm-hmm. you know but it's not the case but with you um I'm curious to know like we know what's next as far as you going to Dartmouth but talk a little bit about your you know, your research, your dissertation and and the plans for that. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So I do research and I don't even like to call it research. I um, document Mm -hmm. my home community of South Central Los Angeles and the ways um, pretty much through my own lens and how through my body I theorized and I was able to find a way um, to pivot against the detrimental environments of like not having equal access to housing, education, employment, and the environmental racism that was around us. I chose dance. Um, But what I found at the end of my research is that I also didn't, I used to say like, you know, I dance instead of gangs or, you know, we had our dance crews against gangs or an alternative alternative to gangs. But what I found is that Um, It was a very similar structure and and a kinship that we had. And I was very, you know, gang adjacent and the similar types of like kinship and hustling. I just hustled in a different way. I hustled academia and entertainment. So what the end of my research 
kind of got to is this, especially after Nipsey passed, was for me to push more how we as Black folks, especially Black youth, we have what I call a corporeal pedagogy. Mm -hmm. And that's a way of knowing that's transferred through our social dances that you can understand life skills. You can understand, you know, similar to hip hop, like what we're going through, through our dance crews and our dance circles and our ways of life that we have and how that's transmitted all over the world via social media and things like that. And that I could be at, you know, Yale when I told you I was pregnant, doing a project on on jerking, mm -hmm. go out and see young boys actually jerking outside and knowing, and I'm, I'm pretending like I don't know what it is and asking them what they're doing. And for them to say almost the same exact thing that my boys that I had been studying in South Central Los Angeles that helped create the dance and to disseminate it. Yeah. So um, my research is an embodied storytelling as well. So... I turned my actual dissertation that I, I, I did extra. I did a, a written and a documentary. I did a 95-minute documentary. Very extra. So I know I'm extra. And <laughs> so because for me, it was important to have um, folks that can't have access to my written dissertation for it to be accessible. And because most of the street dance culture is disseminated through social media, I needed to have it be a platform where you can just check it out on a social media platform. And so I um, had it so that initially it was supposed to be a choreography directly and it was only supposed to be like short little documentaries, but then it turned into 95 minutes. So basically you'll, you'll be able to read my dissertation and actually see what you're going to be able to roughly see in the documentary mm -hmm. and then if you read the doc if you watch the documentary there's aspects of my written dissertation that you'll be able to experience and I want to continue that on um, with going this summer I'll be doing a summer program the Department of Cultural Affairs gave me a grant and I'll be going to another area in South Central Los Angeles and doing street dance activism which I coined for yes. Black Lives Matter and embodied storytelling where they will be telling their own stories of South Central Los Angeles and how they're surviving and thriving right. and um, putting that on top of their embodied storytelling and, and, and like, you know, filming themselves dancing yeah. and then also filming their oral history. And so that's documenting mm. their story, but also a form of watching their um transformation watching their healing process because dancing saves lives and dance is healing but then finally putting that together as something that is archivable for people to know what's going on in south central los angeles so you're just not studying us we are giving our own story so me as that's why i said i don't really do research i do life with my students and i also do life with my community and there are my what i call co-choreographers because you know there's a difference between co-creation for me co-creation is very cerebral and in the mind right. and then choreography is this act of doing and so I want to dance alongside people that I um, interact with and that I do work with so that's what my um, PhD I culminated that 10-year project because yeah. it started in undergrad I was yeah. in a senior honors thesis and you know um, someone was doing a presentation on crump and saw me you know dancing in rise and looked back and was like I'm in class at USC and they're like, is this you? And I'm like, oh my God, because I didn't even know that you could study things like that. I thought you had to be a lawyer or a doctor. Yeah. Like I really knew nothing about college, Yeah, you know? Um, and so for Robin D.G. Kelly to get me, who did Freedom Dreams, you know, mm -hmm. um, for me to be able to have him as a mentor and him to, you know, push me to do 
McNair and Melanie May's research programs. And then for me to be a PhD, he was on my committee. And for him to now, you know, help me transition to Dartmouth where he wrote Freedom Dreams. And, you know, I'm going to be producing these small documentaries and I'm going to put it in a museum. I'm going to put it in, you know, um, the archives of UCLA maybe or <laughs> wherever the archives is because yeah. I still have the original work from us in BLM. I still yeah. have original stuff from 10 years ago from the Jerkin movement. I still have my memories of being involved in RISE before, you know, anybody knew what that was, you know, yeah. and I'm actually in my summer program, Miss Prissy is involved in the summer program. You know, I, I'm always collaborating. Yeah. I got a asked to do the LA Times a couple years ago and I told them I wouldn't do it. They wanted to do an article on street dance activism. Mm -hmm. And I was like, other dance activists have to do it with me. You know, this is we-centeredness and I have to be an example. I'm not the only one that dances for liberation. Yes, I coined street dance activism for the Black Lives Matter movement, but that was something that just came out of my body as a result of not wanting to see us continuously mourning and being in grief. I wanted to have radical joy in that moment. And I knew all I knew how to do at that moment, I didn't know really how to be an organizer, but I knew how to dance. And mm-hmm. I knew I had performing, I had my own organization in the community. I've always been a community justice person. I did performance in the inner city. And I got, if you were, if I would have known you back then, I would have been like, ooh, you want a model? Mm-hmm. So I would intern in Hollywood with this amazing Black woman called Anissa Williams. Anissa Williams casting. So I was interning with her at like 14. So I could just write wow. my friends into things because I knew I was hustling. Just like Nipsey, I wasn't rapping, but I was like, yo, I can get my niggas with me mm-hmm. and we can get in these music videos. We had fake IDs at 14 trying to get into an Usher, <laughs> you know, video and yeah. all these other things. Yeah. And so by doing that, you know, I was kind of breaking the code of this informal economy, you know, like I wasn't selling drugs, but I was like kind of pimping out, you know, <laughs> your friends, my friends <laughs> to get them to, to see they would have never gone to yeah. Hollywood had we not Provide that opportunity. Provide that opportunity. So that's what I've been doing as far as like academia and the community, as well as in my personal life and always being my authentic self in all of these spaces so that you would see me crip walking across the (laughs) stage. And that's also my research. I'm going to have to show you my sea walking because it's not bad. It is not bad. Random fun fact. Random fun fact. I used to battle bitches back in the day. Yeah. Granted, it was like Sacramento. And the Bay Area, so there was not much competition at all. But I was proud of myself. We're gonna have to cripple. <laughs> um. So, how do you celebrate the little wins? The little wins. Mm-hmm. How do I celebrate them? Um, reminding myself to be present and doing whatever thing that would make me feel joyful in that moment. I love to go to this spa. It's called Tikkun Spa in Santa Monica. And they're like family. I'm there like way more than I should. I've brought maybe like 40 friends, which you actually have to go with me one time. <laughs> and we get vagina steams. Oh, God. And it's like five of us in a room. But it's a private room. No, I, yeah. But you can bring up to five people. And steam your vagina. It's so healing. And is it? it is. It's amazing because okay. you've never been in this place. You can actually no. like put it up and down so you're not burning your vagina off. It just it's more spiritual than anything. A lot of our trauma we hold in our wombs. Yeah. So I am intentional and we do spiritual work in there, what we need to release and what we need to let go. And for me, I get a lot of my um, high divine. 
That's my puppy, y'all. Oh, he's not a puppy anymore, but he's very cute. Um, we get a lot. Of, I get a lot of my inspiration at the spa and in the sauna. So what I'll do is when I have a win, I'll go to the spa. And I, you know, I, even when I am beginning my PhD dissertation, I'm not just my PhD, PhD exams, I go and get on the V-Steam. And to, to kind of have a correlation of that's where I go for my win mm-hmm. and I'm going to win. So I do like little, little tricks like that, yeah. right? Um, I don't know if good. that makes sense. No, it only needs to make sense for you. But, you know, a lot of people forget to celebrate the little wins and they focus a lot of time and energy on having these big accomplishments. So it's great that you're doing that. Although you also have a lot of big accomplishments too. Yeah. So I want to say thank you so much for chatting with me today. Of course, anytime. Um, being able to like actually connect in person and Woo-hoo! learn more about your just beautiful story. Um, so where can people find you? You can find me at Shamel Bell on most platforms. Yeah. Um, S-H-A-M-E-L-L. B-E-L-L on all the social media platforms. When you change your name to Dr. Shamel Bell on Twitter, does that mean they have to look up Dr. Shamel Bell or can they still find me? They can still find you. Yeah, Yeah, it's at at Shamel Bell. Yeah. yeah. And even if you want to send me an email, at ShamelBell at gmail.com. Yay. And I'm updating my website on ShamelBell.com. So, (laughs) Well, I think that's great that that we were able just to have this time. And so for those of you who are listening, I want to remind you to keep being amazing. Yes. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for listening to the Change Today podcast. To learn more about Change Today, you can go to changetoday.com. That's C-H-A-N-G-E-C-A-D-E-T.com. And you can follow to learn more at Change Today podcast and at Change Today. Thanks for listening.